Hello, everybody. This is Trevor Cully, host of the History of Persia podcast. From about 550 to 330 BC, most of the Middle East was ruled by the Achaemenid Persians. The Achaemenids pioneered the concept of a truly multinational empire that incorporated people from as far away as India and Greece under the banner of one empire for over 200 years. The story of Persia discusses the fall of ancient civilizations, the origins of endurance racing, 300 Spartans, the March of the 10,000, and at least one evil priest who replaced and impersonated the king, all before the Achaemenids came to a dramatic close with the story of being on the losing end of Alexander the Great's conquests. If that story and the cultures that surround it sound interesting to you, check out the History of Persia at historyofpersiapodcast.wordpress.com or wherever you find your favorite podcasts, like this one. Hello, and welcome to History of Asia. For those of you tuning in for the first time, in this podcast, we travel ever further back in time to look for historical explanations for the present state of Asian affairs. We are now nearing the end of our Arabian adventure. In the last episode, we covered a huge time period, almost a millennium long, Today, by contrast, we will focus on just a few decades in the 7th century. Why this imbalance? Well, quite simply, it's impossible to cover the whole of history, and that was never my intention anyway. Not every period has been equally important in shaping the world we live in, so every year doesn't merit equal attention. Between the 9th and the 18th century, the Arabian Peninsula hardly had any impact on the outside world. This in itself is worth examining, which is what we've done in the previous episode. I've tried to explain this by focusing on the impact of geography on Arabian history. Arabia mostly consists of desert, and before people knew the value of the black gold that lies underneath, no one wanted a piece of it. The notable exception was the Hijaz, for the cities of Mecca and Medina played a pivotal role in the Islamic religion. However, we ended the previous episode with the warning that as an explanation for history, geography has its limitations, and in some cases it will work better than in others. That Arabia would quickly lose its political supremacy, that seems natural given its arid landscape. It simply lacked the resources that were needed to sustain an imperial center. That seems obvious at first glance, but if this is so self-evident, then how do you explain how the Arabs managed to capture this huge territory in the first place? For the fact remains that in the few decades we will discuss today, a rather small people that thus far had not made much of a mark on the world got to absorb not only the giant Persian Empire, but also a big chunk of the Byzantine one. If it were so inevitable that the Arabs would lose their dominion over these lands, then how did they conquer them in the first place? Was this also thanks to their environment, or did it happen in spite of it? It seems improbable that a static factor like geography might explain the rise as well as the loss of an empire, yet such deterministic hypotheses have indeed been proposed. The best well-known of these theories was put forward by a medieval Islamic scholar called Ibn Khaldun. This is striking, don't you think? Wouldn't you expect a Muslim writer to attribute the political triumph of early Islam to the will of God? Well, to be fair, Ibn Khaldun wasn't really talking about the early Arab expansion specifically, 
Rather, he tried to explain the political ebb and flow in his part of the world more generally. For that purpose, he introduced the concept of asabija. A rough translation might be common purpose. I think the essence is nicely summed up in a few sentences in Game of Thrones. The king asks, what is the stronger number? One or five? He holds up one hand with his fingers stretched out. And then he holds up his fist. One. One army united behind one leader for one purpose. In other words, if some power loses its social cohesion, it will be overthrown by another power which is still united and determined, which still has Asabija. Now, what does this have to do with geographical determinism? Well, I don't know whether even Khaldun makes this link explicitly, but it's commonly believed that rough lands sprout forth hard, warlike peoples, while fertile lands produce soft, easy-going folks. People have always believed this. You can even find mentions of it in Herodotus, the world's first known historian. It's hard to prove, but it makes intuitive sense, I think. Now, most of the time, poor lands are divided and egalitarian. There simply isn't enough surplus to fund a system of patronage, let alone a complex state machinery. But every now and then, a charismatic leader comes along, who unites the people of the hard lands and gets them to attack their soft neighbors, to take their riches for themselves. Now, that I find an intriguing concept in and of itself. Charisma. What would you say constitutes charisma? It's kind of hard to grasp, no? Trump and Obama are very different people, but they both undeniably have lots of charisma. So did Kurt Cobain and Marilyn Monroe. They all have or had it. But is this it the same in all these cases? I don't know much about this stuff, but I'm pretty sure there's a cultural dimension attached to it, even a subcultural one in these cases. Culture differs from place to place and from time to time. Snoop Dogg may have tons of charisma today, but I bet he wouldn't sell many records in the 50s. And Hitler wouldn't win any elections in today's Germany. You have to display the characteristics that people find appealing in your time and place. In the case of 7th century Arabia, a charismatic sheikh had to show trustworthiness and sound judgment by the standards of the time. Only when armed with such a skill set could he hope to unite people behind his, uh, beyond his own tribe. Almost invariably, they were united against a common foe, something that still works like nothing else, by the way. And preferably, the leader's charisma also had a sacred dimension to it. There was nothing that the tribes found more important than their honor. If they felt that they had been disrespected, that had to be avenged with blood, and these vendettas would continue for generations. They were unlikely to abandon them unless they considered it an even higher duty, which almost by definition meant a religious duty. Reversely, religion could focus their energies on an outside target, which is qualified as heathen or evil. This goes more smoothly, I suspect, if the target in question happens to be a land of milk and honey, relatively speaking at least. While infighting becomes forbidden, fighting this rich outside enemy can become an obligation. There you have your common purpose. Ibn Khaldun witnessed again and again that under strong leadership, Nomads moved out of the mountains or deserts and took over the rich lands nearby, 
This is half of the theory of Asa Bijya. Well, with some adaptations, that is. Please be aware that the concept is much broader and that I adapted to better fit my story. If you're looking for a precise analysis of Ibn Khaldun's thinking, this is not the place to get it. I approach it more like an appetizer for today's story. Now, that said, the beauty of the theory, I think, is that it also explains why subsequently riches turn to rags again. Once they've installed themselves in place of the rulers that they unseated, they lay themselves down on the cushy pillows, they drink good wine, eat fat food, and lose their appetite for living dangerously. They lose their common purpose, maybe even of the religious sort. In other words, they start to resemble the people that they overthrew. And then they are taken over themselves by another people that is still uh, living in wild lands, still belligerent, self-sacrificing and united. In other words, one that still has Asabija. These days we would say rags to riches, riches to rags in three generations. Now, this way of thinking has of course fallen out of favor. It's a little bigoted in its portrayal of certain types of cultures. Furthermore, things like decadence or toughness are kind of hard to define, let alone measure and test, which makes it kind of toxic to serious scientists, I assume. More importantly, perhaps, it cannot explain the success or failure of specific conquests, even less their timing. And yet, somehow, this line of thinking seems impossible to eradicate. It regularly resurfaces in other guises. Voltaire would say, for instance, that if you listen carefully, you can hear the clatter of wooden shoes going upstairs and the shuffling of silk slippers going down. That's almost the same lesson, if you will, just described in a more concise and poetic fashion. Although it's probably a good thing overall that cyclical theories have declined in popularity, I think I can see why this one keeps popping up. The fact that the impact of something like decadence is near impossible to measure, that does not mean it doesn't exist or matter. Like a certain justice set about pornography, I know it when I see it. I think all of us know from personal experience that things like perseverance do indeed matter. We all teach our kids, don't give up too easily, don't spoil yourself. And that's even true for parents who themselves expect their shopping bags delivered to their door nearly instantly. Rest assured that at least the physical sort of endurance matters more when basic necessities are lacking, and when the struggle of life revolved around camels rather than computers. This seems so self-evident that it feels almost childish to mention it, I think. But isn't that hard to square with the fact that it's taboo to consider that such things might have played some historical role? There are endless accounts in which war leaders try to corrupt nomads with gifts of rich food and drink. Now, corrupt is a loaded term, but that's how they saw it themselves. Reversely, Indians, Mongols and Arabs did recognize that this was dangerous too. They repeatedly warned each other not to fall into such honey traps. After all, Muslims were, and still are, forbidden from drinking alcohol. At first sight, these recurring dynamics seem to illustrate Ibn Khaldun's point. Take the early Muslim conquests. Many of the rank and file in the early Islamic armies were Bedouin nomads, and this was key to their success probably. For these men enjoyed military advantages over settled peoples. That was because the lifestyle to which they were accustomed 
involved habits that were useful in wartime as well. They often slept in the saddle, and they were used to a very sober diet of water and dates. So on campaign, they didn't need to bring along carts of food and other supplies. For regular armies, logistics are just as important as tactics, maybe more so. If you have to march a great distance, protecting your long baggage train is crucial. But these were slow, were slow and vulnerable affairs. With no need for such things, Muslim armies could move much quicker than their opponents, thereby confusing them. It also allowed them to choose the time and place of confrontation. The advantage of that is impossible to overestimate, as any military manual will tell you, starting with Sun Tzu's art of war. This not only implies choosing when to do battle, but also when not to. In this regard, the desert was the Arabs' best friend. Nomads and caravan travelers knew their way around this treacherous terrain, but for those unfamiliar with it, if, if they followed them there, that meant certain death. So the Arabs always tried to fight with their backs to the desert, so they could make a tactical retreat whenever necessary, leaving their foe behind in frustration. When it comes to portrayals of nomadic peoples as rough and city dwellers as decadent, we as modern people are inclined to dismiss this as just a sad stereotype. That may be true up to a point, but such a cliché would likely not have caught on had it not contained at least some small measure of truth. It's not unreasonable to expect a life of hardship to have hardened the nomad. Contemporary sources from both sides leave no doubt about it. Arabs did ridicule their enemies for what they saw as pomp and softness. When offered snacks and comforts on diplomatic occasions, they disdainfully refused to partake. Persian officials, for their part, held their noses when they witnessed the Arabs' dirty clothes and rowdy manners. They did see them as barbarians. According to some scholars, this mutual disgust may have been more important as a marker of identity for the opposing camps than their religious differences on which we tend to focus. Their shabby looks were one reason why their enemies were unimpressed by the Arabs. Technology matters in wartime, and when it came to their equipment, there's little doubt that the Muslims started off as the underdogs. They were hastily summoned together, so of course there were no uniforms or standard weapons or anything of the kind. You simply brought the arms and the protection that you could afford. Since these were poor lands to begin with, most combatants were poorly equipped, no doubt, and they would have had hardly any protective gear. The Arabs probably looked more like a ragtag gang than a proper army, I suppose. So perhaps their enemies could be forgiven for underestimating them. But appearances can mislead. Once they had won their first battles, the Muslims started using the weapons of their fallen enemies. So that original difference was quickly erased. Small aside, I once got the advice, if you want to learn how to play soccer, then first practice with bad shoes and a worse ball. For once you get the hang of that, you will be unstoppable with the right equipment. Now, I am living proof that this doesn't always work out. But perhaps it did for the Muslims. For once they had swapped their old fighting kit for more sophisticated weapons, they became even more formidable than they had already been. Nowadays, some historians tend to downplay the impact of fighting skills in the outcome of wars, but I suspect this is yet another bias of the times. Just because you can't measure it doesn't mean it doesn't matter. 
In fact, I often hear military specialists say that you can't overestimate the importance of actual combat experience. I think it's safe to assume that most Arabs had more experience with violence than your run-of-the-mill Roman, simply because there was hardly any law and order in Arabia. You had to be ready to protect yourself. The only thing that stopped people from robbing or killing someone was that the victim's family or friends would then take revenge. And to make this threat credible, you had to be ready and able to do battle whenever needed. In a stateless society, if you want peace, prepare for war. While in a society with a strong state, if you want peace, you call the police. Now, there were other ways to settle disputes, like paying blood money. That's why effective arbitrators were in such high demand. It's hard to figure out just how prevalent fighting was in Arabia, as there aren't that many sources. But if more recent accounts from tribal Yemen are any guide, we must assume that scores were settled through bloodshed often enough as to make fighting part of life. If you do something frequently enough, you become good at it, and then you tend to take pride in it too. Yemeni men still swear that they'd rather die than part from their precious curved daggers. Well, some of them, at least. And even in prosperous Gulf states, you still have these traditional sword dances. Weapons and the readiness to use them are still considered a sign of masculinity. This tells us, I think, just how deep this tradition goes. This warlike culture could make up for the fact that Arabia, in the 600s, had a much lower population density than Persia or Byzantium. Now, the numbers are hotly debated. My guess would be that the Muslims were badly outnumbered at first, but that this may have changed when the conquests got started in earnest. Places like Syria were already teeming with Arabs and other potential allies, and many must have come over to them once they started looking like the winning side. As I said, this is debatable, and my guess is no better than the next man's, so take it for what it's worth. Another thing the Arabs may have had going for them was the quality of their leadership. This too is hotly debated, for what does it even mean to be a good leader? How to measure that? But the early Muslims attached little importance to social position when it came to determining who should lead a certain operation. This is typical of stateless people, who by definition had little social stratification anyway. And this was an advantage, for it meant that you could appoint your commanders based on how fit they were for the job. It's a main reason why nomadic armies have usually been well commanded throughout the ages. And in this case particularly, there is the fact that in Islam, all men are equal before God. So all the more reason not to discriminate on the basis of wealth or lineage. By contrast, in the regular armies of their enemies, commanders often lacked experience and success didn't necessarily lead to promotion nor failure to dismissal. So if you were an able commander in the Persian army, say, and you felt unappreciated, you might consider joining the other side. You'd have better prospects there. That said, here is something that makes me doubt whether the movement was as merit-based as is often claimed. There's no doubt that one of the biggest assets in the Muslim army was the prowess of the Bedouin nomads. That's only logical since they were used to hardships and they practically lived in the saddle. But then how come that if you went looking for a Bedouin in the top ranks, you would be searching for a long time? In fact, the high command was mostly made up of rich merchants like Abr ibn al-As or people from well-to-do families like Khalid ibn Walid. While they were more than up to the task, and that's a big understatement, 
You wouldn't expect that if the movement were all merit-based, would you? Now, be that as it may, meritocracy must have diminished rapidly anyway under Caliph Umar, for he developed a standing army with a fixed hierarchical system based on the moment when someone converted to Islam. Something that would yet cause serious friction, by the way. It stands to argue that this seniority principle is like the opposite of meritocratic. It was an important step for the Muslims towards becoming more akin to the states that they were taking over. I think this shift was symbolized by the degradation and subsequent dismissal of Khalid ibn Walid. In fact, that was one of the first things Omar did when becoming caliph. Khalid was accused of un-Islamic behavior like spending too much money or having someone killed and then taking his widow for a wife. But he had always been brilliant as a commander, first when fighting the Muslims, then by fighting the Arab enemies of Muhammad, who gave him the honorary titan Sword of Islam, by the way, and finally against the Persians and the Byzantines. So it is clear that his relief from command had nothing to do with incompetence. On the contrary, some suggest that Khaled had become rather too successful for Omar's taste. Because of his successes and his generosity, his soldiers might become more loyal to him than to Medina. Umar made no secret of this. He said that it should be clear to the people that victory was due to Allah, not to Khaled. The most telling and important part of this whole story, however, may be how Khaled reacted to this. Although frustrated and shocked, he quietly accepted his fate. In fact, he probably kept advising the new leading commander, who must have been keen for his help. In a way, this had the effect that Umar envisioned. It was now clear that the Muslim army could cope just fine without Khaled in charge, while in reality he probably still was in charge behind the scenes. But even if it arguably turned out well in the end, we can't deny that this was a risky move by Omar if only because he could not know how Khaled would react. If this, has hap if this had happened to a Roman or Persian commander, he would most likely have marched on his capital and taken the throne for himself. As we will see in the next episode, this is exactly what happened in both these countries just before this time. Arabians in general were not exactly known for blindly following orders anyway, and Khaled specifically was not a man that you could toy with and he was never afraid of a bold gamble, as he had shown on every occasion. So he was perfectly capable of suddenly marching on Medina if he wanted to. But apparently his loyalty was such that he accepted his fate without question. Had he chosen to do otherwise, the war and history might have turned out very differently. It's indicative of just how devoted the early Muslims were to their cause. Even a glory-hungry guy like Khaled put his loyalty or his fate before his own interests. This is rare in any situation, and I think it touches upon the essence of what makes this event so unique. For most of history, Arabs were not united at all and could not dream of a big expansion like this one. It shows, I think, the limitations of a theory like that of Asabija in explaining such events. Now, in other centuries, there were also Arab raids on places like the Fertile Crescent, but such attacks could usually be bought off quite cheaply, which, by the way, was another reason why certain cities were quick to strike deals with their attackers. They reckoned, we now pay this unbelievers tax, this jizya, because it's probably just slang for just another bribe. They had little reason to expect that this time, 
the invaders would stick around and become the new rulers. The Arabs' raids had been a headache ever since they had learned to domesticate the camel. It allowed them to retreat into the desert whenever the opposition proved too strong, to get away before reinforcements arrived. But it's not as if settled societies had been powerless against this. Quite the contrary, before this time, the Persians had ventured deep into the peninsula as punishment for such raids. They, as well as the Byzantines, loved to play the tribes off against one another. They had funded Arabian allies, made them strong by provided, providing them with all sorts of privileges, so they would act as vassals, or as buffer states at least. In the time of the Prophet, their tentacles stretched all the way into the Yemen. So as a rule, the tribes of Inner Arabia were not at all stronger than the so-called decadent people of the rich lands surrounding them. The theory of silk slippers and wooden sandals applies better within the peninsula itself, and more specifically in the south. In Yemen, for instance, hill tribes usually dominated the coastal cities, unless a stronger force from outside placed them under its protection. We've seen multiple examples of this in earlier episodes. And what about today? Just for the heck of it, let's try to apply the theory of Asa Bija to the current period, shall we? That sounds like fun. Now, the geographical situation hasn't changed all that much, I guess. But does the Arabian Peninsula still play the role of the hard land, inhabited by warlike people with a strong sense of solidarity, jealous of the richer lands nearby? Not exactly, eh? Since the dawn of the Oil Age, that situation has been turned on its head. Now Arabia plays the part that Mesopotamia played for most of history, and vice versa. With the exception of resource-poor Yemen, it has itself become a land of milk and honey. Fossil fuels turned the poor nomad far nomads, farmers and pearl fishermen into pampered city dwellers. In the Economist's Global Obesity Ranking of 2007, out of the 10 highest ranking countries, no less than four were Arabian. Now, don't get me wrong, if you're overweight, doesn't mean you're decadent or anything. But it's not exactly something that Ibn Khaldun would associate with high levels of Asa Bija, I don't think. In just a few generations, most Arabians became all but redundant to their own economies, and therefore powerless against their politicians. This is a complete reversal of the egalitarianism of yore. The nouveau riche mentality is at odds with the basic values of Islam, which originated in the harsh environment of Arabia. Granted, some conservative Muslims, like Wahhabis, resisted the decadent innovations that came with this, but even that seems to have run its course by now. Perhaps a true believer in Asabija would now predict that the Gulf kingdoms will soon fall prey to a poorer and more warlike country, which are not lacking in this particular neighborhood, the Middle East. Ironically, they can even be found in what used to be the natural centers of empires, like Iraq. And as it happens, Fossil fuels are one of the few spoils that can still make a conquest worthwhile. You may remember that rich Kuwait was almost taken over by poor Iraq, had it not been for the help of America. And the Houthis of poor Yemen have already made sorties on Saudi territory and fired rockets at Rijat. Then perhaps we shouldn't throw out Ibn Khaldun's theory just yet. Cyclical theories like this one have their limitations, of course. These days, it's more in vogue to state, like Noah Harari, that things may look inevitable in hindsight, but the more you know about a particular period in history, the more you come to see that the way things turn out is just a matter of coincidence. 
because you get to see all these other roads that could have been taken but were not. On the other hand, this way of looking at things is not without its problems either. If everything were pure chance, then cyclical theories like the one of Ibn Khaldun would not be so appealing. And then you wouldn't find so many serious historians agreeing with Mark Twain that history rhymes. Claiming that chance is the only great mover of history, that's about the most simplistic view you can have, I think. For it always comes down to saying, had this not come to pass, then this, that and the other thing would, would not happen either. But is that really always so obvious? Take investors, uh, inventors, sorry. Quite often, whenever they invented something or they did a great scientific discovery, they had to be quick uh, when publishing or uh, filing their patent because other scientists were on their heels already. If Blaise Pascal drops dead before inventing his calculator, another genius would probably do it instead and not long after even. If Hitler had stuck to his painting, I can imagine someone very similar rising to power at the same moment. It's not as if there weren't any other Germans going around who believed in the same things and offered the same solutions. If Kennedy had decided to nuke the Kremlin during the Cuban Missile Crisis, perhaps someone lower in the hierarchy would have intervened, which has actually happened at some time too. So don't be too quick to say that everything hinges on small details. It's not always that simple. Both these viewpoints in the end boil down to what-if history, and hence to speculation. History is an art form, not an exact science in my view. I don't want to proclaim one viewpoint superior over all others. They all have their merits and their downsides. I think the best thing to do is to look at things from as many angles as possible. That keeps it interesting too, I find. Since I've earlier paid so much attention to deterministic theories, in the upcoming episode I will balance that out a bit by stressing the contingent and the unpredictable. The period of the early Muslim conquests lends itself nicely to that approach, precisely because it was such a one-off. Indeed, you could say that it was truly miraculous. There are also reasons, however, why it's not fit for that at all. Stressing the contingent, that means looking at the acts and thoughts of particular people from up close. The problem is not that you can't explain the early Arab expansion as the result of the actions of a few great men, is that the information we have about them comes down to us from the writings of people that have an interest in casting the story in a certain light. So please be aware that little about this is known for certain. Let me illustrate by talking a bit about the supposed characters of the first caliphs. The first caliph was Abu Bakr. He was supposedly a frail figure, soft-spoken and humble. Some would consider him too soft to lead the Muslim community. For instance, because he would let his emotions run free while he was leading prayer. Reportedly, he even didn't see himself as the best choice. The reason that he still got the job was because Omar declared his loyalty to him, taking everyone by surprise. However, this same gentle soul would be the one to take the Muslim conquests international. And also, when certain Muslim tribes declared that they had never sworn to obey or to pay tax to Abu Bakr, it was to Muhammad that their loyalties lay. Abu Bakr didn't hesitate to use violence to enforce his own authority upon these people. That may seem hard to square with his portrayal as a self-depreciating guy. Then again, perhaps Abu Bakr did what he felt was his duty, even if this went against his personal inclinations. What more could you ask of a good caliph, right? 
Now, Abu Bakr was already rather old for the standards of the time when he became caliph, so unsurprisingly, his reign didn't last long. On his deathbed, he appointed a successor. This happened to be Omar, the man thanks to whom he was in a position to do so. Suspiciously, Shiites would no doubt say. According to them, the caliphate should always have gone to Ali, who wasn't even present at a small gathering where Abu Bakr was chosen. Had Abu Bakr and Umar planned this all along? Well, that's a topic that can cause loud arguments, and I'm certainly not going to take sides. But it's important to know about this, for it's a cause for the schisms in Islam, even up to this day. Because they consider the first three caliphs usurpers, Shiites don't agree with the Sunnis' positive portrayals of these people. Under Omar's leadership, which lasted for about a decade, not only would the Muslims deal the knockout blow to the Sasanian Persians, they would also morph into a very different entity, a true state, with things like a proto-welfare state and a standing army. Now, this Umar was an even more enigmatic figure than Abu Bakr. He's supposed to have been rather violent towards Muslims, up to the moment when he read a few excerpts from Muhammad's revelations. Then he suddenly decided to embrace Islam himself. Doesn't this remind you of the Apostle Paul, who used to hunt down Christians before he was struck from his horse by lightning and found God? But again, the fact that such a metamorphosis would be kinda weird doesn't make it untrue. Recent converts are often the most devout, and Umar was known as Farouk for his strictness and sobriety. When Jerusalem had fallen to the Muslims, he would have traveled there nearly alone, on foot or by donkey so no large retinue to help and protect him on the long, arduous journey from Medina. The story has it that when the inhabitants of Jerusalem saw what a modest man their new master was, they rejoiced. This would seem like something out of a movie, right? But how could we know how the people truly felt? It's not that they did any opinion polls back then. And even if they did, Remember that iconic picture of the statue of Saddam Hussein being taken down after the American invasion of Iraq? The picture seems to show at first sight that the Iraqis were ecstatic about their liberation. But later, there appeared images taken from further away. Zoom out and you can see that the street was rather empty. Then the impression becomes much more gloomy. And yet, that too does not tell the whole story, does it? Maybe people were still cautious, but quietly celebrating indoors. On the other hand, it's perhaps not unusual if a conqueror enters your gates to act as if you welcome his arrival. So appearances can mislead either way. In all likelihood, some will have been jubilant, others afraid, still others angry, and some all these things combined. And the same goes for the people of the Middle East at the time of the Muslim conquest. Now, the attitude of the conquered is not unimportant in explaining the Muslim victory, as well as the consolidation of their gains. But it's hard to find any useful information about it. For if someone writes that people were joyful, and others write that they were sorrowful or angry, well, most likely they're all right at the same time, in some cases and up to a point. So this is not really giving you any useful information at all. But we were talking about Omar. One of his other admired character traits was his honesty. He said what he thought and he did what he said. My favorite story about this goes as follows. The Muslims had taken a Persian officer captive and he was led before Umar. There he was offered one last drink before his head would be parted from his shoulders. But the man hesitated. 
Why then, Omar asked, did he not enjoy this last pleasure? The Persian replied that he feared he would be killed even before his lips had touched the water, to which the caliph promised solemnly that no one would kill him until he had drank his cup dry. The Persian, smiling, then emptied his cup onto the ground. Umar was furious, but he let the rascal live. The story has a happy ending, even, as the man is so impressed by Umar's honesty that he immediately accepts Islam. Now, many of you will no doubt think this is just a nice story that teaches a clear lesson. But remember that in many tribal cultures, oaths were indeed the holiest of all contracts. So oath-breaking was seriously frowned upon. Also, it was very much in the interest of both Umar and Islam that everyone was convinced that Muslims were always true to their word. Not only because this is credit to the religion. The Muslims often had to negotiate the surrender of a city or of enemy troops. And it's hard to strike deals with someone who doesn't believe that you will keep your word. The fall of Damascus is a case in point. The later headquarters of the Umayyad Caliphate were besieged from two sides. While Khalid ibn Walid was scaling the walls on one side, the city's leaders quickly surrendered to the general on the other. And it was a conditional surrender. So Khalid must have felt he was strict. The battle had already been decided, so why would they have to grant any concessions? But he would not renege on the word of another Muslim. The third caliph, Uthman, was no doubt the least popular of the Rashidun. Even at the time, he was often accused of nepotism. He gave all sorts of privileges to his family, the Umayyads, and many of the people that he favored had fanatically fought the Prophet until it was clear that he would be victorious. Sunnis, nonetheless, consider Uthman among the righteous caliphs. And if you think about it, that's not so surprising, for he is at least partly responsible for the fact that the Quranic texts have survived. This calls for some explanation, I guess. Well, the problem's revelations were not written down systematically during his lifetime. Arabia did not have a literary culture, and since Muhammad himself didn't bother about it, other people considered it unnecessary too. But when many of his companions died in the walls of apostasy, Abu Bakr understood that their memory would die with them. How then would Allah's message survive? So he tasked a confidant with gathering eyewitness accounts of Muhammad's acts and sayings. He had to write them down to save them for posterity. This is no doubt one of the most important people you never heard of. The man himself understood what a grave responsibility this was, so he went about it very cautiously. Like a professional historian would, you might say. He accepted the testimony only if two companions confirmed independently that they themselves had heard the exact same phrase. By the time of Uthman, there arose another problem. Not as a, that the message of Allah might be irretrievably lost, but that there were multiple contradictory versions circulating. This, of course, posed the risk that the true Quran would be drowned out by all the misinformation. How should they know the true from the false? So the third caliph took it upon himself to find out which version was the real one, and then to dismiss all the others. The importance of this cannot be overstated, but it may well have contributed to Uthman's impopularity, for this meant, of course, that many believers saw their own views banned as heretical. Some will not have accepted Uthman's judgment in this. Perhaps this was one of the things that led to his murder, even. Ironically, this made him more popular among Sunnis later, for he could be seen as some kind of martyr, taking a bullet for the true Quran, if you will. 
And indeed, it explains why he is counted among the four righteous caliphs, along with Abu Bakr and Umar and his successor Ali. Since the definitive Quran was assembled on their watch, their motives and character must be above suspicion. To doubt that is to open Pandora's box. But wait a minute. Didn't we say earlier that most Shiites don't recognize the first three caliphs? Indeed, they think that Ali should have succeeded Muhammad right away, don't they? And that the other three had usurped his position. And yet, Sunnis and Shiites still accept the same Quran. How is that possible? Well, it seems that Shiites generally credit Ali with coordinating the safekeeping of the original Quran, not his predecessors. There's no way of proving which version is true, that's up to the conscience of the believer. And since every Muslim seems to agree on the content of the Quran, it's no doubt best to put that matter to rest. Now, before you cynics out there start scoffing, I would never have blind faith in such a process. Who is to say that this book I have here from the library is the same as the one assembled more than a millennium ago? Well, then consider this. Whenever you do research for university thesis, or a history podcast for that matter, you need to use a lot of secondary sources, don't you? Just how far are you willing to go to check whether everything it says in there is actually true? For instance, I have here a book that is marked Oxford University Press. I find on the internet that that university indeed published a book under that title, and I assume that this is the one I'm reading now. I also take it for granted that it was written by someone whom that high-ranking university deemed trustworthy, and that the work in question has been thoroughly peer-reviewed. Unlike this podcast, needless to say, so don't quote me as a source. I only have you to warn me of any mistakes, so if you notice any, do let me know. Anyway, my point is, do I know these things for certain? Is it not possible, for example, that the writer made a mistake or took some information from another writer who in turn made a mistake? In fact, this happens all the time in academia. Peer review is hardly a professor's main occupation. For instance, when I took a course on social psychology, I had to learn, by heart, the experiments of a pioneer of the field named Zimbardo. It was only much later that I learned, and entirely by accident, that his work had been completely debunked. What's more, his experiments were already discredited by the time I took this course, so go figure. But if you dismissed every work on that possibility, you'd have nothing left to work with, would you? So in practice, even science demands a certain leap of faith. You have to trust the process. In the case of um, science, as well as in the case of the assembly of the Quran, the process seems to be solid enough. For unlike with some specialist papers, with the assembling of the Quran, there must have been a lot of peer review going on. If one of the Prophet's companions lied about what they'd heard him say, there would be lots of people who would know that he was lying, and it would be very bad for his reputation and even his health. Now, I would have preferred to steer clear of this explosive topic altogether, but that was not really an option, for it had a big impact on the legacy and the historical image of the so-called righteous caliphs, and these happened to be the people who led the early Muslim community in these crucial first decades. Their actions were crucial in bringing about its astounding success, and so in shaping Asian history. If you are a skeptic, and you think that what we know about them is entirely colored by later sensitivities or interests, you'll have to accept that there is precious little you can know about this crucial phase in history. Now, as a believer, you can just follow tradition and be done with it. But how should historians deal with this? 
I don't usually use long quotes on this show, but I'm going to make an exception for the following from In God's Path by R.G. Hoyland. He sums up a returning dilemma for all historians who deal with such sensitive topics. Quote, Scholars have tended to take either a guilty until proven innocent approach or an innocent until proven guilty approach, which means that they end up rejecting most of the Islamic tradition or accepting most of it. This has had the effect of polarizing Islamic historians into skeptics slash revisionists and traditionalists, end quote. Now, judging from what I've read from both types of subalters, Hoyland is not exaggerating. As a matter of fact, it's worse, for there is an equally heated debate between, say, Shiite traditionalists and Sunni traditionalists. And among skeptics, there is wide disagreement about almost every aspect as well. Now, I'm not fond of controversy myself, and I don't like the extremes in such debates. I find it unreasonable to dismiss everything from the traditional narrative that can't be verified by multiple unrelated sources as falsehoods, but parroting the official narrative doesn't teach us much about the hows and whys either. Still, since our main goal here is to find out how past events have shaped our world, I feel there's something to be said for focusing most on the official version of events. For not only is it impossible to know what really happened on this or that battlefield, but it may even matter less in the long run than the way in which it is remembered. A Tarantino character once said that facts can be misleading while rumors are often revealing. Take Romulus and Remus, the legendary heroes who are credited with Rome's founding. Of course, there never was a Roman twin suckled by a she-wolf, but few real people from the early Roman period will have had a more lasting impact than these figures of the imagination. Their story helped shape how Romans saw themselves, and this had consequences greater than the real acts of Rome's early kings, who were probably little more than gang leaders anyway. Who controls the past controls the present and future. If you look at it like this, you might conclude that the traditionalist viewpoint merits the most attention. The essence of that official narrative was that the Muslims were successful because they got help from above. As we said, this was the rarest of events. Carl Sagan famously said that extraordinary claims demand extraordinary evidence. Well, some might retort to that. Well, perhaps extraordinary occurrences call for extraordinary explanations. It's funny. I know many of you are rolling your eyes at that. But I bet many of you would also say that the people who know best how and why things happened are the people that lived through these events. Surely they had a clearer and a more nuanced picture than an historian could piece together from a few crappy sources, right? But guess what the people of the 600s, almost to a man, attributed the Muslims' unheard-of success to? To God! And given the lasting religious significance, it should be no surprise that people have done this ever since. Remember, Khaled ibn Walid was relieved from his command precisely because Omar feared that Muslims might credit anyone but God for the victory spree. According to the official Muslim narrative, it was foretold even. Muhammad supposedly sent letters to both the Persian king and the emperor of Constantinople, urging them to accept Islam or else. At this time, these kings probably never heard of Islam, so quite understandably, if this ever happened, they ignored the message from the end of the world, and bam, everything happens, just like Allah's messenger had foretold. It reminds me very much of a story in the Bible, in which a Jewish prophet was summoned before the king of Babylon 
to explain these strange dreams that he had lately. He explained that God, and remember, this would be the same God, had decided that his empire would be divided between the Persians and the Medes, which is also what would happen. Of course, as always, historians will spoil the fun by claiming that such anecdotes were invented after the fact, but what do they know? Perhaps it's important to stress that what happened here was not just considered strange, it was deemed impossible. To illustrate, the Byzantine emperor provided his generals with a military manual known as the Strategikon. It contained all sorts of amusing tips on how to fight different adversaries. For instance, Slavs love to lay an ambush in the tops of trees, so make sure to fight them in winter when the leaves have fallen, that sort of thing. The thing is, all sorts of people are discussed, but not a word on how to fight Arabs. This can only mean one thing. They were simply not considered a real threat. Romans and Persians had dominated West Asia for centuries, and all the while, Arab attacks had at worst been an occasional nuisance. But law and behold, the instant they accepted Islam, not only could they suddenly take over the Persian kingdom, as well as the better part of the Byzantine Empire, they did it simultaneously. How do you eat two elephants? One bite at a time? No, both in one big guzzle. At some point, these two eternal rivals even decided to work together to fight this new threat, and still they couldn't get the better of the Muslims. Not only that, you also have to consider the small but near miraculous events that made their triumph possible. For instance, the Arabs who invaded Persia were under the command of Khalid ibn Walid, the sort of Islam. They were doing very well, as always, under this commander. But at the same time, another Arab force was having a hard time fighting the Byzantines. But that was going on in Syria, and there was a giant strip of inhospitable desert in between these battlefields. Nonetheless, Khaled broke up the fight with the Sasanians, and he rushed straight through the desert, with a whole army, while even for a single traveler, this would have been akin to a death march. Now, according to this story, they slaughtered the camels one by one and then drank the liquid in their bellies. Now, I have no idea whether that is even possible in theory, but it sounds totally nuts to me. But it gets even better. Apparently, they had this man with them, who had made the journey only once, a long time ago. But now, he had gotten blind. Purely on memory, he had to guide the Muslims to this one hidden source of water. Which, of course, he did. Now, if that is true, it's little wonder that people attributed it to divine intervention. And as if that were not enough, Khaled managed to make it to Syria just in time, as the Byzantines were just about to overrun their Muslim opponents. Imagine the sight of these 10,000 Arabs suddenly racing out of the desert. Imagine what went through the heads of these Muslims who were already preparing themselves for paradise. If that's not movie material, I don't know what is. In fact, if this were to happen in a fantasy movie, you would probably go, oh, come on. Such perfect timing, that's just too unrealistic. So if a Muslim lived through this, of course he would thank Allah for this. And now consider the Byzantines. What would have gone through their head, do you think? For this aspect is often overlooked. Of course the Muslims' faith got a massive boost because of all these unlikely victories. And that was a self-reinforcing dynamic. But the opposite happened to their opponents. They could not believe their misfortune. Many must have seen this as proof that God had forsaken them, that he wanted to punish them, or even that the true God was fighting on the other side. 
This, by the way, was probably the main reason for the lack of resistance movements in the aftermath of the conquests. The Muslims were still vastly outnumbered in their new lands by that point. So if Christians and Zoroastrians had refused to cooperate, this would have made ruling extremely hard. But that didn't happen. Even priests saw these events as the will of God, to which they should abide. The importance of morale in war is hard to overstate, and that was even more true on ancient battlefields. If one party feels sure of victory and rushes forward with sabers drawn, while the others are fatalistic about the outcome, well, that's a major factor right there, I think. Once panic spreads, it's hard to stop. Now, the Muslims had been promised paradise if they fell while performing jihad. I suppose if you believe that, you enter the field with a different mindset. Now, it's important to note that Christian martyrs were also promised heaven. So in theory, I guess they should have felt just as emboldened, no? Except it's hard to convince yourself that God is on your side if you are confronted with recurring strokes of bad luck. Those who attribute the Muslim victories to divine intervention could also point to a coincidence on a larger scale. The fact that the rise of Islam and unification of the peninsula coincided with this rarest of moments when both the giant empires were in deep crisis. They were crippled by long wars, pandemics, insurrections, coups, religious schisms, you name it. I think that most historians would agree that if the Muslims had invaded only a few decades earlier, they wouldn't have had a snowball's chance in hell. So perhaps this too was divine intervention then. While we're at it, you can take this further still. The expansion stopped around the time when the Muslim community fell apart. That was due to struggles between the Umayyads and the followers of Ali. Sunnis see the schism, or fitna, as displeasing God, while Shiites might say that he was more displeased with the murder of Ali. If so, it's perhaps hard to explain why the expansion resumed under the Umayyads, but that aside. Now, it needs to be said that there are objections to the hand of God thesis in general too. Of course, this theory is impossible to prove or disprove. A battle can be decided by something as trivial as an arrow finding or missing its mark. Whether you attribute that to divine intervention or mere luck is up to you. But if you hold the opinion that miraculous events call for miraculous explanations, then perhaps we should first ask whether the event in question truly qualifies as a miracle. I've heard say that the difference between a miracle and a chance event is that a miracle is impossible unless the laws of nature are suddenly overturned or something. Now, if that's the definition to go by, I don't think these events would qualify as such. There were many coincidences, sure, but it would be a strange universe indeed in which nothing unexpected or unlikely ever happened. And if you want to look at all this as an act of God, there are some things that you have to gloss over or at least demand some intellectual gymnastics to explain. For starters, it's not as if the Muslims met no resistance at all. They faced major setbacks, especially when the empires began to understand what they were up against. It's also not that the Muslims were spared any misfortune. Their enemies were gravely hit by pandemics, worse than the Muslims, sure, because they had more densely populated areas, that's not so strange. But if these plagues were sent from above, you'd expect the Muslims to be spared completely, no? Well, that was not the case, not at all. 
even prominent Muslims fell victim to it. Some of the calamities that befell the Muslims have even been blamed on unwise decisions by the caliphs. For instance, there are some who claim that the famine that struck the Arabian homeland might have been avoided if Omar had saved some food for this eventuality, instead of distributing everything. Conversely, some of the most impressive victories were largely the work of late converts, who had been the Prophet's staunchest enemies until they saw the light, and they were not always known for their devout adherence to Muslim precepts even thereafter. Khalid ibn Walid, for instance, would bathe in alcohol. It's not exactly the same as drinking it, granted, but the idea is probably still to get intoxicated, no? Well, I've never tried it, so I have no idea, but why, why else would he do it, right? Well, <laughs> I've heard in the Islamic History podcast that he may have done it to disinfect his wounds, but that sounds pretty far-fetched to me. It sounds more like upholding the letter of the law, but ignoring its spirit. Anyway, it's not controversial, I think, to say that Khaled was the most devout Muslim. That's why he was officially demoted, after all. Why, then, would Alasi fit to make him the greatest of his generals? In fact, on a larger scale, it's pretty clear that non-Muslims played a decisive role in the Muslim victories. Many of them voluntarily fought on the Muslim side. Then there's the fact that the Arabs were not the only ones winning great victories against the Persians and the Byzantines. The Avars, the Slavs, and especially the Turks, looked like they might destroy these empires themselves. And they were not Muslims, to be sure. The fact that it was eventually the Arabs who took over these lands is sometimes attributed to the fact that they were situated at the soft underbelly of those empires, where they met with little resistance. But I suspect it's more important even that the Turkish confederation fell apart due to internal bickering while the Muslims stayed united, thanks, once again, to their religion. Again, some might even see this as a little too coincidental to be a mere coincidence. Overall, fortuitous timing was a vital ingredient in the making of the early Muslim conquests. In the next episode, we'll talk more about this, as we consider the situation just before that these uh, conquests kicked off. For now, I will leave you. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Talk to you soon. Bye.